Hey, my name is Jensen, one of the servant leaders here at Ethos. Thank you so much for checking out our podcast today. We hope you can lean in and enjoy this message. Well, hey, I'm glad that you're here today. We are week two of our series called Why Church Matters. And this is kind of a unique series for us. It's, as I've mentioned over the last month or so, it's really the the sister or the cousin series of the one that we just concluded about the Holy Spirit as we're just looking at really just how do we allow the Spirit of God to have just a, a greater home in our life. In one sense, more control, just that we would surrender even more. And if you're newer to church and you come here today, maybe for the very first time, or you're not sure what you think about church, or maybe you've been hurt by a Christian previously, or just had a bad church experience in your past, you might hear a series like this why church matters. And you might think, man, I think I came on the wrong Sunday. But honestly, I I hope that today gives you life. Hope that you find encouragement in what we're going to talk about today. And I honestly believe that you will. Last week, as we kicked this off, we we began just by asking the question, like, what comes to mind when you think about church? If we were to pull everybody in this room Even furthermore, if we were to pull everybody that we just came across on the street within the next hour, we would get just a a myriad of different answers and responses, some of which might might sound similar to one another, but all of them would probably have different nuances to them. If you've you've had a bad church background, you, you might talk about how Christians are judgmental and hypocritical. If you had a great church background, you might think, man, the church is still the hope of the world and it makes a massive difference in communities and societies, but More important than what comes to mind when we think about church, more important than what comes to mind when you think about church, what comes to mind when Jesus thinks about church? Because as followers of Jesus, it's his thoughts that we are called, instructed, even commanded to obey. In Romans chapter 12, the apostle Peter says, don't copy the behaviors and customs of the world, but let God transform you into a new person. How? By changing the way that you think. It's so important that we understand that when we change the way we think, when we align our thoughts with God's thoughts, that's when we experience what he goes on to say, we'll learn to know God's will for us, which is good and perfect and pleasing. It's God's will that's been designed for you and I to experience that is good, perfect, and pleasing. In one sense, if we feel internally like we aren't experiencing a will for our life that is good, imperfect and pleasing, then we need to digress and rewind and say, okay, then it needs, it's a result of the fact that I haven't allowed my thoughts to be transformed by God's thoughts. And as we discussed last week, and we know this to be true, if we just reflect just momentarily on our own individual lives, how you think about something or how you think about anything inevitably shapes who you become. Every action is preceded by a thought. Y- y'all with me? This morning, we talked about this at the very beginning of this year in a series that we, we called Thought Life. But now, as it relates to this particular topic, why church matters, think about this for just a moment. What comes to mind when you think about church will inevitably shape the type of church that we become. It's not just what comes to mind when I think about church or when our stewardship team thinks about church or when the staff thinks about church or when the person next to you thinks about church. It's what comes to mind when you think about church will inevitably shape the type of church that ethos or whatever church, if you're watching online or you're just hanging out with us briefly today, whatever church you are a part of, your thought life determines the shape of that church. We all have a part 
to play. And we need to recognize that part. Sometimes I think even what I'm saying right now can go in one ear and out the other. But let's just take this a step further. What you think about church will also inevitably shape your interaction with church. So how you come to church is determined by what you think about church. How you interact with the people that are a part of God's family, a.k.a. the church, will inevitably shape your, your interaction with those people. And first and foremost, we have to identify, as we discussed last week, this is just all brief review, that church was God's plan. It wasn't man. Now, a lot of times there are ways in which man's influence has gotten kind of involved in the church. That's where abuses of power have taken place. And that's where sin needs to be acknowledged. But we also have to accept the reality. There are three institutions created by God and they were done so in this order referred to as divine institutions. First was the family, then the church, and then government. Now, these three aren't functioning in their God-given potential. And we can kind of quickly identify that, but when they are, they cause society to flourish because that's how God designed them to exist. Now there's a thousand different institutions created by man over the course of, you know, thousands of years, but there's just three that were created by God. One of them being the church, and therefore we have to say, okay, God, what is your plan? What's your will for the church? This is important. In fact, one of my concerns as we were leaning into this series and, and we were just kind of fleshing out what, what this series would, would consist of was just the thought that when people hear why church matters, we're just going to zone out. And that's the reason why I share with you, this is so important. Like this was not just somebody's plan. It wasn't just kind of drawn up as a way to kind of create some power within, you know, humanity structures and some plausibility structures. Like this was God's intent was to have healthy churches all across the world for the flourishing of society. And so all of that was review. And here's where we're going today. Y'all ready for this? I got a really exciting title. Y'all ready? You, you, you sure? Okay. One person. Scott Nelson. Okay, Andrew's ready. All right. If you're new, you're like, is this how you do it every week? You just wait till we're ready? Not really, but I probably should. Here we go. I want to share this morning. Why go to church? Woo, how good is that? That's the hairs on your arms stood up a little bit. Yeah. You're like, Jordan, like we're already here. I know I'm sort of preaching to the choir, but listen, I actually don't think I am because I think there's reasons as to what we've thought about the purpose and the reasons for going to church, attending the gathering of God's people, the ecclesia, the called out ones, that I don't think are actually God's thoughts. So I want to I look at this just a bit deeper. I want to ask that we would all just lean in and invite the Spirit of God to speak to us this morning. God, we continue to welcome you, acknowledging you, and honoring you in this place. And so in this moment, would you, we invite you to, Speak to us through the gaps of what I prepared to say and what you want to say to every single heart, mind, family, child in their classrooms, those watching online, those listening at a later date. God, we, we, we want to hear from you today. We desire to be the church that you've called us to be. Amen. Amen. I, I want to share a confession this morning. Is that okay? A little confession? A little confession time? I should have a chair up here and a priest behind a curtain, and this has been my confession time right here. Um, growing up, for many years, I uh, attended Penn State games. Penn State and the Lions. Yeah, I know. It's not something that I'm proud to admit right here, 
but I am from Eastern PA, and as a result, I am equally a Penn State fan as I am an Ohio State fan. Now, please don't hate me, okay? Some of you are like, it's not possible. And see, and that's why I'm your pastor, because I want to teach you how to love all people, all right? Except for the team up north, okay? But in all seriousness, I remember one year, I believe I was in second or third grade, I'm at a Penn State game with my dad, and we're leaving the stadium, and they were playing Nebraska, and we, we just crushed we just crushed the Cornhuskers. This is back in like Nebraska's heyday. Some of you are too young to know that Nebraska used to be a really great team. But we're leaving the stadium and I had a Penn State t-shirt on and I was carrying a red sweatshirt. Now, if you're not familiar, Nebraska's colors are red and white. And I'm carrying this red sweatshirt with me and it was a bit chilly as the Sun had just begun to set, and I throw my sweatshirt on, and as we're leaving the stadium, there's a large group of Penn State fans off in the distance, and as we get closer and closer to them, we realize that they are yelling profanities at my dad and I, and they look unbelievably angry, and my dad kind of pulls me by the hand a little bit further away from this group of, of Penn State fans, and I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know why they were so upset. I thought, man, the, the, the Nittany Lions just won the game. Like, like, why is everybody so upset? We get into my dad's truck, and my dad said, son, do you know why they were so mad? I said, no. He said, because they thought that you were a Nebraska fan with that red sweatshirt on. I said, dad, why didn't you just tell me to take my red sweatshirt off? You know? <laughs> In Acts chapter 9, there's a similar story. Not really. (laughs) But it feels similar in my mind. Because I thought I was about to be killed at that Penn State game. Saul, who is the artist that we know today as Paul, (laughs) finds himself on a road to Damascus. Okay, so he's not leaving Beaver Valley, Penn State Stadium, but he is on his way to this city, and his purpose is to kill Christians. He wants to persecute them, at the very least, throw them in prison, make fun of and mock them, defame their, 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 their names and separate their families. And, and on his way to Damascus, he has this wild encounter with Jesus. In fact, Paul is today, without question, the single most influential Christian separate of Jesus who's ever walked the face of the earth. Paul is the one who we read about in the scriptures and who also also authored most of the New Testament. Like, this guy is legendary, but he wasn't always the Paul that we know of. In fact, it was in this moment in Acts chapter 9 when Paul is on his way to Damascus to persecute some Christians, he encounters Jesus himself where something radical takes place in his life. If we pick up here in verse 4 of Acts 9, it says that Paul falls to the ground and he hears a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now notice what Jesus didn't say. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? He says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That for Jesus to persecute the church was to persecute him. Later on in Paul's life, for the next several decades, Paul begins to pen these letters to churches that he established all across the Mediterranean Rim, and he repeatedly confesses things like, I long to be with you. I wish I could travel 
to you. At one point, Paul gets so frustrated because he can't seem to make it to the church whom he loves so much and longs to just hang out with that he begins to blame the devil and he says, it's Satan's fault. He stands in my way. I'm trying to get to you, but I just can't make it there. There's so many obstacles that are keeping me from getting into your physical presence. So he pens another another letter. Now, I share that because the shift in Paul's posture toward the church is is two things. It's both incredible and it's instructive. I mean, even today, it's instructive for us because the same Saul who traveled to critique, to kill, to persecute Christians is this same then later Paul who gives his life to serve these same said people. Like it's this crazy conversion that, that for Paul, what he discovered is that being Jesus' friend means befriending Jesus' friends. And so when it comes to church, here's a question for us. And think about your own proverbial mirror right now, not your neighbors. Do we come to church as Saul or do we come to church as Paul? Do we come to church as one who is always critiquing what's happening and critical of other people who absolutely are hypocritical, all of us included? Or do we come as Paul, one who loves, wants to see the flourishing of God's people take place, wants to see those who are hurting receive help, those who are broken healed, those who have relationships that have been destituted to, to just fail, see restoration in those areas. Like, do we come as Saul or do we come as Paul? Do we come more with a critical eye or do we come more with a loving, gracious, tender spirit? Like, how do we come to church? How do we pass other churches? How do we view churches that maybe in the past have hurt us or maybe they didn't even necessarily necessarily overtly hurt us, but we just look at them with disdain because they don't do church the way that we think church ought to be done, the way that you think church needs to be done. They don't meet the requirements or the checklist that you've assigned as a good, healthy, great church. Like, how do we look at those churches? Just quick side note, one of the things I learned from my pastor growing up as a young child is every church I drive by, I just say a quick blessing over Because you can't help but fall more in love with those that you pray for. You can't help it. It's a natural byproduct of what takes place when we pray. The whole sentiment that is so prevalent today, I love Jesus, I just don't like his church. It's an oxymoron. The scriptures are really clear, in particular 1 John. Loving God but hating his people has no historical precedent. Part of loving God is loving the church. And part of love requires our presence. Now, does that mean that we shut up and leave all critiques at the door? Absolutely not. We need the truth. And we need to be called out when sin gets in the way and kind of darkens the beauty of what God is trying to do. Like, like we absolutely need one another in private settings to come before each other and to call out that which is keeping us back and holding us back from God's best in our individual lives. And we need to call out abuses in the church. And we need to call out, even when myself included, kind of gets off track a bit. Like, we need that. So I'm not implying that we just think that everything is always perfect, even when it's not. We need to acknowledge sin. But that role is always best done from within the church in love, never from outside of the church pointing the finger. 
Never. And so if we ever find ourselves doing that, it needs to be something that we ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, convict me of that sin in my life. Because anybody can point out a problem. But it takes a real leader, a real Christ follower, some serious endurance and courage to be a part of the solution. Consider this for just a moment. I was reading this article a few weeks ago. It was super random. I don't know if any of you are like me, but I'll start reading one article or watching one YouTube video. And next thing I know, like 30 minutes later, I'm reading something. And I think, how in the world did I come across this article? This is one of those moments as I'm reading this article, I discover that if a mother suffers organ damage during pregnancy, the baby in the womb can actually send stem cells repairing the mother's damaged organ. I was like, man, that's pretty cool. And the article went on to say that we are designed to help our mother when she's hurting. I thought, that's actually what the church is supposed to do too. That we are supposed to help the church from within inside the church when the church is hurting. It's so easy to point the finger as we exit and say, man, they did everything wrong. Never got it, never even got it close to being right. But it's so much better. It's difficult work, but so much better if we're inside the church and we say, I want to be the answer to the, to the problem. The lure to abandon church, come on, you know this, it doesn't come by a predictable route. There's probably been a season of time in your life where maybe you've been tempted to or even have abandoned church. You absolutely, without question, have friends who have abandoned the church the ecclesia, the gathering of God's people together. But it never comes by just one singular reason. I was talking to a friend not too long ago, and he shared with me, he said, Jordan, I I feel like people have stopped coming to church because of sin, evil, and disobedience. And I thought, I don't think it's ever really that overt. I think sometimes people come because they've been seriously burned by the church, and they may, they may need to take a season of absence and allow themselves to heal still within a community of believers who can help walk through that journey with them. All the while, though, God is going to continually draw you back into a larger community of believers to exercise your gifts, to see the flourishing of the church, and as a byproduct, the flourishing of society take place. Some people leave the church because they're upset with the abuse of power within the church, rightfully so. There has been absolutely abuses of power. There's documentaries highlighting this, and many of you have seen them. I also would caution you at times, not all of them, but some of them are just simply failure porn. We just like to see people fail. And as a result, we get addicted to it because it makes us feel better. I'm not as bad as them. I might be bad, but I'm not as bad as them. Sometimes some people just stop coming to church because it's not satisfying to them. Like, ah, it's boring. I just didn't like it. It just didn't make me kind of, just didn't kind of make me feel like it was fun. Other people feel awkward or out of place at church, and maybe they're a bit more introverted by nature to begin with, and it's just an uncomfortable place. And we say it so often that church is often one of the more awkward spaces to walk into for the first or even for the 100th time. Other people are just lured away from church simply by brunch, Or just wanting an extra hour of sleep, right? Like, that's a reality too. Like, we just maybe even got into a bad habit through COVID and just trying to figure out how do we get back into community. And so with all of that, 
Here's the question then, why should we go to church? Like what's, what's the reason? Because there's a thousand rational reasons to go to church. And I was gonna share them with you, but honestly, for the sake of time, I removed this portion from my notes because I'm not sure that we even need them. Because all the rational reasons, you can go through all the studies that have been done and there's been so many, so many as, as it relates to why church is valuable for you. It lowers the divorce rate, it lowers depression and anxiety in our lives. It creates a space for our kids to have some sort of moral standard in their life. It also is good for the community. There's all sorts of studies as it relates to the ways in which when there's a healthy church planted in a struggling community, the church can actually help that community flourish in ways that if the church wasn't there, government institutions could not do. The point being, though, is that all of these, if we think about them, or at least most of them offer some sort of personal benefit that we receive from going to church. And I actually think that part of that personal benefit becomes part of the problem. That we go simply to get something from the church. And that's not entirely bad, so don't misunderstand me, because in three weeks, we'll dive a little bit deeper into this. Next week, Dr. Tammy Smith will be with us to help us in this series. And if you've ever been here for Dr. Tammy or anywhere for that matter, you know that it's going to be worth coming to you. And she's probably going to make you cry, make you laugh, make you feel super convicted, and make you feel super encouraged all in 30 minutes of time. But, but, but sometimes, though, we, we come just to get something from it. And at some point along the way, as we mentioned last week, we've actually trained Christians over the course of the last 50 plus years to be demanding consumers rather than disciples of Jesus. So do we really just go to church to get something for our own benefit? Because doesn't that in some ways merely perpetuate the consumerist culture that has caused so many to abandon the church, even some of your friends? Like there's gotta be a more beautiful and deeply meaningful reason as to why we go to church. Like, but here's the truth though, is that church historians today are calling the age in which we live the anti-ecclesial age, which is simply means the anti-church age. And so within that climate, I thought it was important that we, as a community, as a church, as we begin to lean into our five-year celebration here in about three weeks on October 8th, on a Sunday morning, as we just celebrate together, it just felt like it was the right time to lean in and just ask, what, like, why do we go to church? Like, what are you to tell your friends as a way in which I want to help equip you? I want to help give you some resources. Like, what do you tell your friends? Or perhaps your parents, or maybe even your children who no longer go to church, but wonder, why do you? And so the reasons I want to give you, there's, there's five of them, and I'm going to go through a few of them pretty quickly, but the reasons I want to give you here, they're confessional and personal, meaning they come from my own life, but they're also deeply theological and objective, meaning these aren't just my opinions. And so what's being proposed here, though, is just catch this. This is not a series of reasons as to why you might want to go to church. I want to give us why you should go to church. And I know that even as I say that, some of you are like, I don't want anybody to tell me what I should do, especially as it relates to going to church. We don't like to be told that. But what happened is we, we went from an era where we were told that the only place to find God is in church to a whole other ditch in the ro road, which is like, like you can find God everywhere except the church. And I want to bring us back into the, into the middle here because I don't actually think it's a bad thing for us to say what we should do. 
Now, I know that can bring shame. That's the enemy. I'm not trying to shame anybody in here this morning. So please hear me when I say this. What we do want to do, though, is say, God, change my thoughts. Transform the way I think. Because during this short season that we call life, we want to use it for you. And so what is it that you want us to know about the church as it relates to the ways in which you are calling us to be a part of it? There's an old philosophical dictum that says love follows knowledge, which just simply means the heart needs a vision. And so here's my question for us today. What can be a vision then? A reason for going to church and committing ourselves to a group of very flawed men and women and agreeing to journey with them for the rest of our lives. What can be that vision? First, I want to say I think that the reason we should go to church, come on somebody, I think is to dispel fantasies about myself. In other words, for the sake of humility. In Romans chapter 12, Paul writes, don't think that you're better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves. Measure yourselves by the faith God has given us. Just as your bodies have many parts, each part has a special function. It is the same within Christ's body. We each have a different function, a different role, a different part to play. We're many parts of the same body and we all belong to each other. Again, not a popular teaching. Again, this particular title of this message, Why Go to Church, probably isn't going to be like one of the highest viewed on YouTube. Because we're not saying, why do we want to go to church? What benefit does it give into your life? Which does, marketing-wise, actually create a lot of response. People are like, yeah, I want more benefit for me. But what we're saying is, man, we belong to each other. Listen to me. Separate from church community, whatever its faults may be, and there are many, separate from church community, though, we have an open field to live what psychologists call the unconfronted life. Christian psychologists define the unconfronted life like this, that to make faith a private thing that we can selectively share with few like-minded individuals who will never confront us where we most need challenged. That's sort of the world that we live in today. And we've created it ourselves because when we are challenged, we just cancel that individual. And we move on to the next, the next person who won't challenge us. Tim Keller wrote, that social media is a great way to control what other people think about you. But in a family, you can't really do that. And that's what the church is intended to be. See, I can, I can fake you all out on social media, but you know what I can't fake out? My wife, my kids, my closest friends, who see the good, the bad, and the ugly of my life. And I would argue that we all need that. And that happens through a long obedience in the same direction. You don't grow familial relationship ties overnight. It doesn't happen by visiting a church once or twice or even three times. I often tell first-time guests that I get the privilege to have coffee or share lunch with, I tell them, look, whether it's our church or another beautiful church in our community, go for at least a couple months. Just kind of kick some tires, turn some things over, and begin to learn, like, like, is this where I want to give my life? More importantly, is this where God is calling me to give my, to give my life? Even in worship. You know, one of the more beautiful aspects of what takes place when we worship God in song, as we were doing just a moment ago, we're saying, God, I surrender to you. That's why we lift our hands, because an outward posture, anywhere you go in the world, you lift up your hands, they know exactly what you are doing. You are surrendering. 
You are putting yourself in a state, in a place, in a posture of vulnerability. Not closed off, not trying to fight, but you're like, God, I just surrendered to you. And even in that moment, one of the more beautiful things that's happening internally within our souls is we are saying, God, I recognize right now that it's you who is big. It's you who is great. It's you who is worthy. Do in me, stay to me, do through me, whatever you please. I'm willing to be confronted right now. And we, we need to create this opportunity, this space to dispel the fantasies that we have about our lives, even in the teaching and the preaching of God's word. Sometimes we, we need it. Look, if it feels uncomfortable at times, I'll just tell you this, that there are many a times when I'm preaching, I'm like, oh God, that one hurt. That one didn't feel good. Someone told me last year, they said, Jordan, your goal when preaching is to only be 20% hypocrite, 80% real. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, there's some things you're going to preach in God's word. You just ain't living up to it, bro. I was like, man, that actually set me free. It made me feel like, good, like we're all in this thing together. Like I'm not trying to be a hypocrite. But the byproduct of, of, of saying, Jesus, I want to follow you is at times meaning I'm also human. And so there are going to be times when I don't do the best job following you. There are times where I get off the platform even and I think, God, I wish I could have a do-over. Thank you for second service. <laughs> we got to dispel the fantasies about ourselves. Second thing, reason why we should go to church is to carry and to be carried. One of my favorite stories in the scripture is found in Matthew chapter 9 and Mark chapter 2. It's a story that some of you may have been familiar with. I love this story, the story of four friends who have a buddy who's paralyzed. And these four friends begin to catch wind about Jesus who is healing people and teaching with authority and doing stuff they had never even heard of before. And they say, man, we, we ought to take our friend to Jesus and see what Jesus can do for him. We love him. We care about him. We want the best for him. So they catch wind that Jesus is in a nearby town. And so they put their buddy on a mat and they carry their friend to the house where Jesus is teaching. When they get there, they must have felt a bit discouraged because the crowd was so thick that there was no entrance into the home. They couldn't figure out how to kind of finagle their way through the density of the crowd. And so the one friend says, why don't we just go up on the roof? That's a brilliant idea, man. Let's go on the roof. You know these kids were in high school or college. And, and they get up on the roof, and then they're like, now what? Other friend says, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna dig a hole through the roof. They start to dig a hole through the roof, taking off the ceiling tiles. And I can only imagine the homeowner, as he's inside, probably sitting by Jesus, he, he feels the dust coming down from the ceiling. He's like, what is, what, is, what, what are you doing? What are you doing? Jesus, can you handle this, man? Can you? The story says that they lowered their paralyzed friend on the mat in front of Jesus. And it says in Matthew chapter 9 that Jesus saw their faith. Whose faith did Jesus see? It wasn't the paralytics, it was the friends. Because of their faith, the man was healed and the man was set free, even forgiven of his sins. Listen, sometimes the best thing that I can do when I struggle with my faith is to surround myself with people who are full of faith, who are faithful. For those who are deconstructing faith, whether it's you 
or a friend, or maybe you're watching online right now or listening at a later date, this can be your deepest need, someone's faith to borrow. Have you ever thought about the reason why you come to church is to lend your faith to someone who needs it right now? Last weekend, a friend of mine who's just going through a difficult season, he, he, he was met by another friend of mine who comes here regularly, early, every Sunday, often stays late, every service. And they had this conversation, this interaction. And my friend, without even really thinking too much of what he was doing, just, just prayed for my friend who's going through a difficult season and just, just spoke life into him and encouragement into him. And I thought, that's what church is supposed to be. A place where your faith feels a little weak and you need to borrow someone else's faith so that together we can meet Jesus. The goal is never just to carry somebody on your own. It's always to carry them to Jesus. Come on, let's get in God's presence. Let's, let's pray. Let's open up our Bibles together. Come on, come on, be a part of my small group. There's encouragement there. Come on, you ought to sign up for mentorship with me. I believe that there's encouragement there. On Tuesday night, I had the privilege of speaking at Ethos Young Adults, Ethos YA. And, and Ethos YA gets done, it literally concludes after my bedtime. And so as I'm there, I'm telling all these young adults, I'm like, like, look, man, you know I love you because I really like sleep and y'all are keeping me from my bed right now. And as soon as I got done teaching, I was about to just grab my keys and, and go home because it literally was after my bedtime. And, and, and I thought, no, you know, I'm just gonna hang out a little bit and just try to encourage anybody that I can kind of interact with. And an individual came up to me and just said, hey, I'm just kind of going through this unique season, just feel kind of disconnected from what God has for me. And I just, I honestly just feel distant right now. Will you pray for me? I said, absolutely. And so I, I prayed. And in the middle of the prayer, I just paused. And I, I said, hey, just, just stay here for a second. Let's just sit here with our eyes closed to avoid distraction. And I had this, this image just come across my imagination. Because God will use your imagination as an instrument of faith in your life. And the image was kind of bizarre. It was just a strawberry in a strawberry field. And the strawberry was super ripe, but the rest of the field was all kind of dying. And I just had this image as though like God was coming through the field, plucking that fresh strawberry and removing it and taking it to a different, fresher field. And I said, hey, look, this, this might be really weird. I don't know if anybody's ever done anything like this to you before. I've never had a vision like this before, but I just saw this and I just shared with them the story. And they said, that's wild. I said, I'm an artist. And recently, I can't stop drawing strawberries. In fact, just last week, as I was just praying, God, I feel so distant from you. I felt like God was saying, I'm going to pluck you out of the field you're in, but you need to make some hard decisions. I'm like, well, okay then. <laughs> you do what you need to do. I'm going to go to bed now. <laughs> Look, that's not I'm, not, I'm not saying like patting myself on the back because some of you even hear, well, yeah, Jordan, you're the pastor. No, that's, that's not like reserved for a pastor. That's, that's reserved for the church, the body of Christ, the family of God, empowered by the spirit of God. So will you come? Will you come to church just to carry people knowing that sometime in the future, you're probably going to need carried too. Number three, why should we go to church? To love, be loved, and to learn to love. 
In Luke chapter 7, there's this wild story that I've often misunderstood. To be quite honest, I've often wondered, like, God, what are you really trying to teach through this story. There's Jesus is eating dinner with some Pharisees, some religious leaders who don't even like Jesus. Like these are the same men who later accuse Jesus and, and send him to the cross. And, and so he's eating a meal with these guys. And in this moment, there's a woman with a really bad reputation that enters the home where this meal is taking place. And in Luke chapter 7, verse 38, it says, this woman stood behind Jesus at his feet weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Now, we later identify that this perfume was really crazy expensive perfume. Could have been sold for over a year's worth of wages. And so this woman comes up to Jesus and the religious leaders, as we discover in verse 39 through 44, they start to say, if Jesus was really a prophet, if he really was a son of God who he claims to be, he would know that this woman is an adulterer, she's a sinner, and he would have nothing to do with her. And yet Jesus, catch this, he was never afraid of being seen as guilty by association. Who are we guilty of that? I know that I am. And so Jesus, then he, he, he says to this woman, man, no, you're like, you're welcomed here. But the Pharisees, meanwhile, they say, Jesus, you must be a sinner for welcoming this sinner. And Jesus, that woman could have sold that bottle of perfume and given a year's worth of wages to the poor. Now, here's the great irony. If this woman had gone to Jesus' grave after he had passed and poured out this affection and poured out this wealth of perfume, it would have been accepted. It even would have been admired. We still save our best compliments, even today, 2,000 years later, for funerals. We still save the most beautiful array of flowers for funerals. But Jesus' challenge here in Luke chapter 7 is for us to anoint each other while we are still alive. Ronald Rollheiser in his book, The Holy Longing, he writes that what is the church? He says, church, whether we do it in a building or around a kitchen table, is about getting together to take the ointment. That is, to offer each other love and affection. There are three people in this story. There's the woman who is showing love and giving love. There's Jesus, who is receiving love. And there's the Pharisees, the religious leaders, who need to learn to love. And at any given moment on a Sunday morning, you are one of those three. Sometimes you are all three in the exact same moment. Have you ever come to church and you've seen somebody who you don't really like? Who maybe you heard about a behavior. Maybe you heard about an incident that they didn't want you to know about. Or maybe they're more overtly open about their lifestyle or their way of living, but they, they're, they're, they're wanting to follow Jesus. We have little grace today for the people that we used to be just like Why? The Pharisees had an opportunity here to say, I need to learn to love like Jesus loves. Have you ever come to church before and maybe even been afraid of what it would look like if you engaged with somebody because of who you've heard that person to be or who you know that person associates with? I'm just telling you right now that the body of Christ is one of the more beautiful places where we can learn to love. In fact, 
One of my favorite you know, modern theologians says that the church is the modern day community of where love is best learned. But what we often do is if people don't look like us, talk like us, believe exactly identical to us. And I don't mean core beliefs, as we mentioned last week. I'm talking about some of the convictions or even opinions. Then we, we kind of push them aside and we look to those who I, who, whose ideology aligns identically with ours so that they will never challenge us. Because we want to live the unconfronted life. But the unconfronted life doesn't sharpen you to become more like Jesus. We love the proverb that iron sharpens iron. We just don't like actually the, the byproduct of iron sharpening iron. The friction, the sparks, the challenge, the sharpening. We just don't really like that. But we need to learn to love. We need to learn to receive love. And we absolutely, absolutely need to learn how to love. Number four, we should come to church for the emerging generation. My last two points are pretty quick here. But I was meeting with a family a few years ago and we were just talking about life and raising kids and kind of in a passing comment, they share with me that they don't want to impose their spiritual convictions on their children. And I understand what they were saying and we had a really beautiful conversation around that idea but as we began to talk more and more, I just offered to them, I said, look, we, we send our kids off to school, then we send them off to university, all so that our children can begin to think for themselves. But the truth is, nobody actually thinks for themselves. We're all a collection of what other people have thought about us, said to us, and as a byproduct, put thoughts into our minds. I love what Joseph, Hel- Joseph Hellerman says in his book, Why, the Church, Why We Need the Church to Be More Like Jesus. He He wrote that peer relationships on a high school campus or power relations between esteemed professors and lowly students at the university virtually guarantee that our children will be socialized to assimilate the belief structures and moral practices of these communities. We know this to be true. This is not just true about our children, but it's true about you and I as well. Furthermore, he says, unless though, this will happen, unless though, they are simultaneously confronted, confronted, there's that word again, simultaneously confronted with the with the influence, that's a word, that's, that's a word, with the influence of another more compelling community. That community is the church. Now, Kendra Creasy Dean in her book, Almost Christian, writes that two factors that help someone remain a lifelong follower of Christ. First, their parents have walked through their own faith challenges and remained faithful to God through those difficulties. And second, the child has no less than five adult Christians in their life who love them, care, and instill commitment to Jesus into them. A tribe. The tribe gives the young a chance to believe for themselves, but they package that belief in a rich and committed community, a great cloud of saints that one would be crazy to deconstruct. This is why Ethos Kids matters so much. This is why we don't have childcare. This isn't babysitting on Sunday morning. We want to disciple our kids to know Jesus and then also simultaneously come along parents, come alongside the parents and say, we want to help you too. Because we know that life is hard. And so we need a tribe. We need a community. We need to be in this thing together. That's why Ethos Youth is so important. We're not just trying to play games on Wednesday nights. No, we're trying to help your young people connect in a small group with a couple leaders who can help process through what life, what's going on in their life together. 
is why young life is so important. Guys, listen, this is why ethos mentoring is so important because we oftentimes think, this, we're just talking about the next generation, but in point four, I didn't say the next generation. I said the emerging generation. Every generation that comes behind you, you, as a baby boomer, have the opportunity to help encourage the faith of Gen X, Gen X, those of millennials, millennials, those of Gen Z, and so on and so forth. We come because the emerging generation's faith needs our faith. Every stat out there tells you that when one generation begins to walk away from the church, it's only a matter of 10 to 15 years before the next generation begins to walk away too. Because we're always looking to the generation ahead of us as to, well, how did you do it? How did, how, did you, how did you raise your kids? How did you teach them to follow the commands of the scripture? How did you teach them to listen to the voice of the spirit? How did, how did you teach them to live life in community unconfronted among one another? Well, how did you do it? We're always looking to the people ahead of us whether we realize it or not. And that's why mentorship is so important. Deadline is tomorrow. Barna did a study on why 59% of millennials left the church and why 41% have stayed. And they concluded that intergenerational relationships topped the list of reasons that people remain connect connected to their faith communities. Number five, lastly, right here. Because God calls me there. Why should I go to church? Because he calls us together as a family, as his body. See, if you walk into church, like going to the movies, you might walk in expecting to be entertained. If you think that church is just another opportunity for personal devotion and worship, you'll probably walk in not interacting too much with anybody around you. It's just, what can I get out of it? If you think that church is something you have to do in order to do the right thing or to stay on God's good side, you'll walk in with a determination to do what needs to be done and leave as soon as possible and kind of check off that good deed from your proverbial list. But if you walk in, if you walk in on a Sunday morning, God, I pray that we get this. If you and I walk in together on a Sunday morning, understanding God's heart to place you and all people for that matter in a family, a part of his body, then there is one particular way that you would walk into church that you would want to master that you and I would want to figure out. And this way of walking into church, I believe beautifully and even prophetically expresses what church is and what it's meant to become, why we're all here. And it's this, that when we walk in, we would pray about where to sit. That one simple decision, that one simple action, that one simple pragmatic way in which we can walk into church, I believe would cause us as a community over the next 10, 20, 30 years together to become the church that God has called us to become. Because whenever you pray, you express the foundational truth that God's will, not yours, that God's kingdom, not ours, is primary. And so first and foremost, when we pray, we are saying, God, not my will, but yours be done. Whenever you pray, we begin to think about church as being about someone other than me. And more specifically, that when you pray about where to sit, we're trusting that church really does matter and that what we do at church really does matter and that God has something important for us to do. In particular, someone that he wants to sit next to, to talk with, to listen to, to pray for, to encourage. And so here's what I'm asking, and here's what I'm going to try my best to keep before us. Would we, 
begin over the next year or so to develop this habit? How do we come to church? How do we walk into church? That each of us would begin to pray about, where should I sit today? Who should I sit next to? There are people here right now, I see some of your faces, who I know that every Sunday you already do this. And you've challenged me in this. And it's by watching you where I've even identified that I think that would actually change. If the whole church did that, whoo, what would that look like? There are some of you who I know that during every, every kind of meet and greet moment after worship where we get out of our seats and high five, hug, learn a new name, friendly people make the best friends. Whenever we do that, some of you I know intentionally look for faces who you don't know, who may even be new for the first time because you want to help them feel welcomed. You want to learn how to love them and you want to learn how to show them love. What if we prayed about where to sit? And sometimes that meant you're going to sit on the front row. Sometimes it means you're going to sit on the back row. And I know that's hard because all of you sit in the same row every week. I'm like, wow, is so-and-so here today? Let me, let me look. Nope. <laughs> yeah, you know. Sorry, I'm not trying to call you out right now. <laughs> Looked into your eyes. I'm reading your soul right now. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we pray about where to sit.